Hello everyone and welcome back to Eating Salads. It's me again, Austin Crosby, coming in from what must be, I don't know, like day six or seven or even maybe more of uh, tuna salad in a row. I think this is one of those great cases in life. I've always wondered how much is too much. When would I get mercury poisoning? And we are going to find out. But you have to think humans survive much crazier for instance, if I were on a ship stranded at sea or on an, an island and I only had tuna salad or tuna to eat, um, would it be a problem? I don't think it is. I mean, to be clear, I'm eating other things as well. I had some chocolate pudding, some banana pudding, all that kind of stuff, some rice. But uh, I don't know, like when we went to the grocery store the other night, to restock on soft foods for Casey and uh we were walking past this the like sa salad section and she was like oh do you want to get any salads and I was like not really I'm kind of if you don't want to eat a salad I'm kind of uh I'm I'm kind of into this other experiment regarding tuna salad I mean I've had enough I've had a lot of salad you know what I mean so let's give it a uh, an, an episodic break. I've done that before, although I can't really remember what that other type was. I think it was like sauerkraut or kraut or coleslaw. Okay. I've done that before, but I, it's been a while. Um, let's talk, what else? Well, the roads are wet, which means we've had about as much rain as we ever get here. I've noticed the average shower, what normally it wouldn't even move the scale in Atlanta, they wouldn't even note it. I mean, it, if, if it ha if it sprinkled in Atlanta and someone said, oh, did it rain today? Someone would say no. But here it can sprinkle so lightly that the roads don't even get wet, right? An evaporations amount of water. And uh, it's noteworthy. But we're supposed to have thunder. And we did kind of have thunder earlier. And then when I came up to watch the rainfall, it was very, very, very underwhelming. And then I looked at the weather report. And it said the highest chance of thunderstorms is coming up here in like 15 minutes. So I would super be excited for that to actually happen. That would be really dope. I've kind of, I thought maybe if I did record that that would happen, but uh, it's not yet. Interesting spring day. I think that we've determined, is the saying May showers brings, no, April showers brings May flowers because uh, the ship was called the Mayflower and that's probably what they named it for. But, um... In other spring fashion, we like really saw an amazing scene of bunnies playing earlier today. It was fantastic. They were very close to me, and I gave them some lettuce. I hope they take the lettuce. Sometimes they don't like food you give them, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, what else? Housing. I've been researching housing affordability and uh, international steps, and I think that Intuitively, and uh, it's backed up by the science, the best 
the place that's solved the problem the most. And that's an interesting barometer or a bar or litmus test or whatever. I don't know how to put it, but Mongolia doesn't have an affordability crisis with their housing, right? No one wants to live there. Appalachia, no one wants to live there. You know what I mean? You have to look for places that you would, that a, a normal person would want to live, could live a happy life in, and then go, hey, how do they, you know, all things considered, how is it affordable here? And the winner in that regard seems to be Vienna. I have to look at other places. I have to look at uh, like Singapore gets brought up, but then people bring up like the terrible culture that Singapore has. Vienna uh, is, you know, a cultural powerhouse for hundreds of years. An arts city and a capital of a Russia, of a uh, European country. So how did they beat it? What do you mean? Well, 60% of Vienna's 1.8 million residents live in either social or subsidized housing. Unlike other places, Vienna does not have a cap on the income to qualify someone for living in social housing. And there's not much of a distinction, apparently, between some of the social housing or the subsidized housing and other buildings. So, apparently, Vienna has had pretty much only one political party in control of them since the early 1900s after the fall of uh, the Austria-Hungarian Empire. It is raining now, guys. Sorry, I got distracted. It started. Here we go. Um, and basically, socialists took over in the early 1900s. And the only time they've not been in control was during World War II when the Nazis were in control. But in the early 1900s, like 1919, 1920s, there was this dynamic where the city's workers were living in squalor, in ghettos around the town, on the outskirts of town maybe. And uh, they had all these like immigrant workers. Everything was all bombed out. Maybe I don't know. You know, after World War One, and so they said, "Let's actually solve this problem." And part of the distinction versus everywhere uh, this was common in in the early twentieth century, especially in Europe. But the big difference was Vienna uh, owned a lot of the land, and this is a common thread. This is a next case I'm going to bring up is Helsinki, which has kind of copied them, but the city's own land. And uh, in the case of Vienna, they have a wealth fund that actually buys land. And then what they do is they lease that out at low to no cost to developers who compete um, for contracts from to build subsidized housing on these like free land, basically, or subsidized land. And it's not just the cheapest bid. There's a council 
made up of like a diverse group of people supposedly who determines like well what building would be the most sustainable the best most mixed not just for you know small flats but also for like families you know they also they put amenities in them they they go for nice designs so they just don't and i think that that makes sense right if enough people in the town of all income levels have this like equitable access to social housing it's not just for poor people then the people deciding what these houses are going to look like have in a way kind of paid for them themselves apparently in the early 20th century it was through a system of elaborate and arguably overreaching taxes i guess the middle class did not like it at the time but it's worked. I mean, now it's like they're the poster child of housing affordability throughout the world. And I don't think that an intelligent person would argue that Vienna is like any worse for it, for this socialist situation that they've built. Um, again, because it's like, well, that's what the city had. The city had land. So they just subsidized it with the stipulation. It wouldn't be a ghetto. It's Other places... Uh, they would have built, you know, cheap, nasty ghettos on the far sides of town, and a stipulation of staying there would have been that you had to be poor. So it just made it to where, like, they were never integrated. You know, there was a class divide. It was unsightly, created resentment and squalor. Of course. So I guess that's the difference. Now, that being said. The city also builds half of the new construction every year inside of the city uh, is built you know, in this manner. And that's to the tune of 7,500 units per year. So it does make you kind of think, you know, American cities are never going to catch up to that. There's just zero hope. It's never going to happen. <laughs> um, and it's, but, you know, there's hope for European cities where there seems to still be decent people living. And uh, Helsinki copied their kind of plan doing, you know, similar thing where it's like many people live in social housing and it's not like it's, it's integrated. It's not uh, like a ghetto. But they've done it, I, I believe, in Helsinki... The city owns 60,000 units. And I can't remember what percentage. I think they own, they also own like 70% of the land. So they've been able to do this a similar vibe. They own the land. They own a construction company. They own the largest construction company in Helsinki is Helsinki city and they're like determined to just build housing and it actually led to in the uh mid 2000s they got like a doctor a scientist a priest like they made like a, a walk into a bar joke out of this group of guys and they said you know tell us what would fix homelessness and i think it's funny because like i'm sure they had a homeless problem but it wasn't like an american homeless problem right it was a quaint northern european homeless problem but these guys came back with a plan called Your Name on the Door, which led to them having no questions asked housing for the homeless, housing first, where they just will put you in a home, 
and uh, it's pretty much eradicated what they call street sleeping. It's got rid of that entirely. They have one 50-bed shelter, but they've housed, like, I think thousands of people this way because they have all these uh, units. I just think that's fascinating, right? I mean, comparing it to Section 8, which is like landlords get a tax break in the U.S. I don't know. It's not the same thing, is it? It's not like a commitment to make your city, you know, the best. That's the thing I've been thinking about, this analogy of like, if you showed me a painting and it was just a bad painting... It's not one fix. It's not me saying, oh, just make that a good painting. That's all you got to do. You have to look at the painting, analyze everything wrong with it, and replace everything wrong with it with something good. And that could be a little formulaic. It could mean like you're going to get generic good painting, right? But like, I don't know, man. It's everything. It's like you got to stop it all. So it's hard to like tackle this problem and not just find that it's everything. It's all of the above. It's zoning, it's transit, it's uh, social housing, it's credit scores is a big one, I think. But mostly sprawl, I mean, and culture. I think in a, in a one thing I've found in research is like reading comments on some of this stuff and them just being like, them by them, I mean the nasty comments saying like, why can't I, what, why are you going to take my right to a single family home? I don't want to share walls with people. I don't want the noise. And people are, and I've seen people who are just like, yeah, if you can afford a single family home. But I think that's the crazy thing with, in America is this sense that like all the spots for cities have been taken. And it's not like you can just form another city up river from your city with good rules all the land is bought all the houses are built and now it's become illegal to replace those houses and it is like vienna is five to eight stories for kilometers around the city center and you couldn't do that here i mean you literally would need to bulldoze all of our houses and replace them but they have 10 times our population. And this is a common theme. I've also been comparing Colorado to Switzerland in terms of trains. And uh, Switzerland has more people, and those people are wealthier. But it's not like they have twice as many people. It's not like they have twice as much tax revenue. It's not like they have twice as much money, per, you know, GDP. And then you think, well, they started building Switzerland's train system in 1847. And they started going to how it is now with 200 lines and 8,000 stops or whatever it is, 80, you know, they, they, they've done that over decades. So when you look back at when they started, were they bigger than we are now? No. So it's about time. You know what I mean? It was about time in 1847. That's what Switzerland proved. It was about time for housing in 1919. That's what Vienna proved. And I think that there's this hypocrisy with the United States that we have this like 
laboratory of free states and free cities in those states, this nesting doll of experimental government. But there's this terrible, gross disgust at looking to others and implementing their successes. The arrogance, that's the problem I think we won't get past here, is like people legitimately would prefer their single family home. I mean, we kind of, I'm kind of guilty of that, but I don't think that they're, I mean, we've toured really cool condos in, in renovated buildings in center of Atlanta that we were like, oh yeah, this is cool. This is a three bedroom condo. That's awesome. You wouldn't care about your neighbor's noise. You might get rid of your car, but I don't know. It's a whole thing, right? So that's what it is. And I mean, I think there's this cost analysis that's like the city had to raise taxes this much and then they only got this much, you know. There's the, and, but it's like, man, in Vienna, all those people are saving that many hundreds of dollars per month. And that would obviously... I mean, one example was like the... The pushback they got against middle class and like business owners in Vienna in the 1900s, what eventually won them over was just realizing they could pay people less because housing costs went down. They didn't, they weren't, no one was as pinched by housing costs. In reality, I think in America, that would be, go a long ways to see people spend money elsewhere. You would see people just like take up hobbies, go to restaurants. I mean, it's the same thing as if you added a day to the weekend. It's just kind of like common sense, and we've seen it. It's played out. Makes it's been done. You know. Anyway, it's interesting stuff. I'd I'd recommend looking into it. Oh, and and just to summarize too, there's a recent study out of Helsinki that showed that their public housing had an interesting effect where. People would move into public housing, but then poorer people would move into their house once they moved. So it ended up up, you know, it up moved a chain of people. They they called it like a housing chain. It it moved everyone from a worse situation up one rung. So you found that like people moved from the outer ghettos into the slightly better situation inside the city once those people moved into the new indistinguishable from normal house, subsidized house. And I think that's kind of an actually interesting example of trickle-down economics, which is ironic because it's coming from socialism and not, uh, not capitalism inherently. And they also said that it's very lucrative for developers to build subsidized housing in Vienna and in Helsinki because they're getting this deal of like, oh, we can build it on this land. Okay, cool. The city works with them. And then if it comes all out, the city doesn't fleece them if something goes wrong. They'll actually subsidize the renters if the rent has to be higher than what would make sense. They'll come, they'll come at it again from the other side later on. It's kind of crazy, right? Anyway, guys, thank you very much. It's pretty much done raining now. Come again tomorrow.